You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. From midnight to night, the 500,000 rupee notes will become just worthless piece of paper. Do you see anyone with black money here? Only the poor are getting hurt. Who else is suffering? This week on Adventures in Finance, we deep dive on the India demonetization and look at the intended and unintended consequences. Bringing a little perspective to things is my friend Simon Mikhailovich, the CEO and founder of Tocqueville Bullion Reserve. So you remember uh, Willie Sutton, who was a bank robber in the United States yeah. in the 1930s, and when he was famously asked why did he rob banks, his answer was because that's where, that's the, money where the money is. is. Yeah. Right. And so they're going to the people where the money is. With us as well is Rao Pal, founder of Global Macro Investor and Real Vision. In India, it's the opposite. You need money in the banking system for the system to function and for government to function and without it you can't build a modern powerful economy. Kicking off a regular feature what I got wrong is my co-founder Raul Pal who uh, confesses to one of his sins. Financial markets teach you humility because whenever you think your shit smells of roses you suddenly get your face rubbed in it. And finally our producer James brings in a top-notch guest to explain the carry trade. I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is January 26, 2017, and welcome to the pilot episode of Adventures in Finance. I'm Aaron Chan. Uh, And I'm Grant Williams. Hey, Grant. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. A nice sunny day in the Cayman Islands. Yes, it is. But unfortunately, we are sitting inside. Yeah, well, that's the problem with working in the Cayman Islands. You're always indoors and the weather's outside. (laughs) Right. Well, nonetheless, welcome everyone to the first episode of Adventures in Finance. And what we're trying to do here is a weekly podcast, but it's something that's different from your average financial podcast. That's the aim. We we hope we're going to try and distill some of the more complex ideas in finance down into simple uh, ideas that people can grasp and try and question the consensus and the narrative. That's right. And we also want to sort of explore some topics that other people just aren't paying attention to. Uh, there's so much to look at in the financial markets and in economics, uh, and we want to shed a light on those things that are less followed, but very interesting nonetheless. For those of you that aren't familiar with uh, Real Vision, this is um, a project we launched a couple of years ago with, with the aim of trying to bring um, some clarity and some truth to finance, try and democratize financial information. Uh, and the podcast is just the latest uh, in an attempt to do that, to try and immerse listeners and invite you into the Real Vision universe. That's right. And our first attempt is going to showcase the India demonetization story. But before we get to that, Grant, can you explain to our listeners what they can expect? Yeah, every other week, we're going to take uh, an in-depth look at a situation happening in global financial markets and try to strip away some of the layers, try and talk to some of the people we've interviewed on Real Vision and get their perspectives and cast some light on some of the nuances of these situations that you're not going to find anywhere else. All right, so let's kick it off with India. So Grant, looking at some of the significant events of you know 2016, we have obviously in, uh, NERP out of Japan, we had Brexit, we had the Yuan inclusion, the SDR, and then we had the mother of all events, we had Trump. But I think one of 
One event that flew under the radar was the demonetization in India. And I mean, it was one of those events that it was it was hidden behind the presidential election, but it was something that really kind of shook the Indian economy to the core. Yeah, it was, it was a huge step. I mean, it's a big step. And, and you're right. I mean, they they announced it in the middle of, of uh, the U.S. election results coming in, which was some would say it was a coincidence. Some would say it was a masterstroke. Um, but I was surprised you know, three or four weeks later when you talk about this and people were like, when did that happen? So it word hadn't gone out. And the response I found interesting when when you talk to offshore expatriate Indians that have all their money offshore and, you know, they're wealthy guys living in foreign countries. They're like, this is a great idea of Modi's, you know, to try and stem the black market. When you talk to people in India who it's affecting up close and on the ground, you're right. I mean, this was this was a truly seismic event in that economy. 1.2 billion Indians, which is 16% of the global population, were perfectly comfortable having their dinner in the knowledge that uh, their money, their cash in their wallets uh, or safes or wherever, was money good. And one minute later, their prime minister went on TV. We have decided that the 500 rupee and 1000 rupee currency notes presently in use will no longer be legal tender from midnight tonight. That is 8th November 2016. The 500 and 1000 rupee notes will become just worthless piece of paper. So, just like that. I mean, there's no just like there's that. no phase out plan here. This no, is no, no, just like that. Worthless piece of paper. That was precious metals expert and founder of Tokyo Bullion Reserve, Simon Mikhailovich. And just like that, completely without warning, Prime Minister Modi of India banned 86% of the value of currency in circulation on November 8th, 2016. Let's just get through some of the facts first. Um, you know, anyone who exchanges more than 250,000 rupees, approximately is subject to a tax audit. You have 50 days to exchange your notes. And the stated rationale is is to fight corruption, black money, and and counterfeit finance terrorism, um, which is something we've heard before in in other parts of the world. It's a familiar thing. It's a familiar thing, which we will get to. But, you know, India, according to the the World Corruption Index, is ranked 76. So, you know, they do have a problem with corruption. And their shadow economy is estimated at $440 billion dollars. So, which is actually larger than the combined economies of Finland and New Zealand. So, there is a problem, and just like that, overnight they they banned eighty six percent of currency in circulation. Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you look at the, the two thousand thirteen numbers, it's something like one percent of Indians pay their taxes. I mean, we we know it's a problem, um, but first of all, to the just like that part of it, that's the only way you can do things like that, right? You can't get word out it just ha- it can't leak it just has to be done overnight the same way nixon shut the gold window he did the same thing went on tv on august 15th 1971 boom gold standard gone but when you see within two or three days 50 percent of the entire trucking fleet of the country is idle by the side of the road because people can't pay for gas you realize what an incredible effect something like this has in the country and the, and the idea of trying to make sure you know where the money is and and be able to tax it efficiently most people in India don't have bank accounts. 
right? This is something we understand negative interest rates. We understand the idea of banning cash because you want to be able to tax money at source and avoid it. But most of these people, they deal in cash their entire lives and they don't deal in an awful lot of cash. There were snake-like queues where people waited for days just to try to exchange their currency. Uh, people panicked and ran to the banks. The banks ran out of money. Um, ATMs were ill-equipped. Uh, of course. They ran out of you know lower denomination notes in, in, in hours. And I understand that the government needs to keep this sort of element of surprise in order to wrongfoot the you know, the criminals or the people in the black economy, but it ended up proving to be highly disruptive to the poor and the middle class. Well, I don't even think it's necessarily being disruptive to, to try and, you know, catch out the criminals. I mean, you know, there's an old joke about uh, uh, when I was growing up in the UK, they were talking about how the, uh, the Irish were going to uh, change from driving on the left side of the road to the right side of the road, but they were going to do it gradually. You know, you can, there are some <laughs> things you can't do gradually, and this is one of them, right? It's just you have to do it in one fell swoop. You know, interesting to me that your know, gold plays a big part in Indian culture, uh, and people understand it, and and people own it. It's it's how they save their money because they don't use banks. And what they also did as as a, as a follow up to this was uh, was restrict the amount of gold people could own. I think if I get the numbers right, I think if you were a married woman, you could own five hundred grams, and, and all that was part of the dowry. Uh, so, you know, if you were a single man or a single woman, it was it was half that. But what was interesting to me when I read about this was that the customs, the, any any investigation, if more gold was found than that in, in any particular home, was at the discretion of the customs official. Now, you know, you, you put things like this in place, that doesn't seem to be particularly well thought through to me. I mean, I can see a couple of loopholes in that and how it might be used the wrong right. way. About the marriage topic, I mean, I was reading, I was also reading about how there, there just wasn't a cash to buy gold for weddings. So a lot of weddings couldn't happen. Right. Right. Um, you look at some other second order effects. I mean, there's a 60% collapse in real estate transactions in certain parts of the country just because traditionally in India, at least 20% of the transaction value is done in, is in cash. Yeah. So, you know, you had that second order effect. And, and there's also the, the human element and the social element that kind of gets swept under the rug a little bit. I read the story of this, this second year college student, Suresh, who's from a, a small town in Northern province. And after not being able to withdraw cash over numerous days and after waiting long hours, days actually, to, to withdraw cash for his examination fees, he went home and, and committed suicide. Well, look, there, there are going to be stories like this. I mean, this is a human story. Uh, it has a tremendous human element to it. And, and it's, it's, a, it's in a place where there's a, you know, a lot of poor people, right, that rely on on cash. I mean, you, if you read the coverage in some of the newspapers in India, um, you'll see government officials pronouncing what a success this has been. You know, this is this is the story that they'll talk about how tax receipts have increased. They'll talk about, you know, some of the some of the numbers that they were looking for to prove whether this was a success or not. And then you hear the human side of it, and the human side of it is 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 arguably the more important. Uh, it's also the one that's going to receive least coverage. Yeah, and and not to say that it's a good thing, but. You know, India was sort of the first mover to do this, but the debate's actually been raging in the West for some time. Well, this is, I mean, this is the other interesting thing that people will gradually learn, that cash in a bank isn't their money. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work like that. There is no longer a deal whereby you can go and take out your cash and that's that. That's Marin Somerset Webb, editor-in-chief of Money Week, speaking with Raoul Powell, founder of Real Vision. You know, I had a, a friend who at the, uh, the peak of the financial crisis had sold his house and had all his money in uh, one of the Scottish banks. And he thought, well, this is making me very uncomfortable. I'm going to go get it. Uh, so he took himself off down to the bank and he said, can I have, I want it all, can I have it? He had his car with him. Um, and they said no. And, and it they said took no. him four or five days to get his cash out physically. 
so you know you don't you don't have an, an automatic ability to take out your cash and isn't that one of the biggest misconceptions that that's out there i mean when i talk to people it's like do you know that a bank only holds around 10 percent of all the liabilities that it holds or the deposits and they're like, wait, what? I, I never knew that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and then now we have prominent Western economists like Larry Summers, Ken Rogoff. They're all calling for a ban on cash. Well, Western, mainly Harvard economists at, th- at this point. Uh, but, you know, Ken Rogoff wrote a book about banning cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- th- these cries for banning cash in the West are, are loud and coming from very influential people. Yeah, it's interesting when you read these discussions by the likes of Summers and Rogoff, um, how it's always couched in terms of, you know, we're going to do away with a $100 bill and the 500 euro note in order to defeat drug dealers and money launderers. You know, it's always, you're always demonizing people. You know, you talk about 98% of transactions in India being conducted in cash. In Germany, it's in the 80s. You know, these are, these are societies that use cash. Now, a $100 bill, you can't get change out of that taking a family of four to the movies in the US these days. So this is not a high denomination note anymore. The, you know, this is to me. This is pernicious. It's nefarious. It's a way of confiscating uh, wealth from people, and I don't think it's being understood by a generation uh, who are all about convenience. You know, the savers understand this. People that have wealth, but you know, I talk to my kids about this. They're they're in their twenties, and and when you talk to them about contactless paying cars and not having to carry cash, like, oh, that's great. They don't get this. You know, this is a really important context uh, concept to understand. If they can take your cash and they need to take it, they can come up with a reason to take it. We saw it in Cyprus. And, and you touched on it, Grant. The reasons that they're using sound very familiar. If you go and talk to somebody at the, at the Bank of England or at any of the central banks about this, you know, they, they look at it in a very different way. And it's not their money, that's why. It's not their money, but as far as they, they can see, it kind of is their money. And it makes sense to them to be able to control money completely digitally and to be able to say, well, you know, cash, what's cash? It's anachronism and it's just for criminals, really, isn't it? You know, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't need cash. Why would you want cash if you're not, you know, evading your taxes or something? Uh, so, you know, they can, they can put up a very good case for this. It's inconvenient, it's dirty, it's used for, you know, people who launder money and uh, are involved in drugs, and that's not you, is it? So you wouldn't want it. There seems to be a disconnect here. I mean, India ranks 76 on the corruption index, as I mentioned earlier, but the United States is ranked 16th. Right, right, yeah. So... There's a, there are a lot more transactions that go on in the United States, so I guess that that's why it's doing so well in the rankings. But you know what I find interesting that they started talking about this in, in Australia recently, and the article in the in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, or actually maybe in the AFR, but it was it was a prominent newspaper in, in Australia, and the headline was "Let's do away with the Jolly Green Giant," and the Jolly Green Giant is the green hundred dollar Aussie bill, and. It's so clear that the narrative here is to try everything to make this acceptable, to make it very good for the for the country and the economy and for you, uh, when realistically giving a government control over your cash is never a good idea. I mean, governments do not spend money well. They have a, a, a habit of expropriating things that don't belong to them when they need them, and they generally tend to need them. So, look, it's 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 a bad idea being couched in a dangerous way that is going to convince a lot of people it's a good idea and and, and it and it terrifies me frankly so, you know so we've identified this kind of split between the what's happening in india and you know in the west but i think the the question that needs to be asked is like why is the west doing this if corruption is not actually a problem well i guess you could argue corruption is a problem in the west but i think we have to introduce this concept also known as financial oppression well, look corruption is not an east-west thing corruption is a human condition 
it's what human beings do, right? That's just the way of it. It's been like that since the dawn of time, the dawn of money. Um, you know, you know the, when the first guys were exchanging stones, one of them was kind of figure out a way to try and you know break the stone in half. And it, 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 this is just the way human beings work. So you're not going to stop it. Okay, you can try and crack down on it. But this idea of financial repression is something that has been talked about in recent years. I don't think people really understand what it is. Um, but one guy who certainly does, I spoke to in London recently, that's Russell Napier. Uh, and the, the simplest definition of uh, financial repression is keeping the yield curve below inflation. But you and I are not stupid. So if we saw that the government was about to hold the cost of money below inflation, we might borrow money. But wait a minute, they're trying to bring down gearing. But the incentive to you and me is to gear up in this scenario. So they have to bring in other things, measures to stop you and I gearing up, which is the elements of financial repression. They have to try and force you and I to buy government debt, even though it is a virtually guaranteed loss-making proposition. And they have to bring in controls that would stop us behaving naturally as a response to negative real interest rates. So there's a lot to unpack there, uh, you know, for the concept of financial oppression. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what a yield curve is, the yield curve is a line that plots the interest rate for a bond across various maturities. So when people are talking about yield curve, they're usually referring to the rate at which the U.S. is borrowing at various maturities, be it three months, one year, five years, 10 years, 30 years. And uh, the concept of inflation is also important because it erodes, an inflation erodes the purchasing power of money. Uh, and the money you lent the government is worth less two or three years, five years later uh, when they pay you back. So by keeping the borrowing cost below the rate at which the government debt is inflated away, they are effectively reducing their debt. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I put a chart together for a, a, a presentation I gave a couple of years ago, uh, and it's to this day the simplest chart I've ever built, and it's it's had more responses than any other chart I built, which is probably telling me something about, <laughs> about getting too complicated on my charts. But you know, I, I, I put two bars uh, on, a, on a, a slide. One was the interest uh, on $10 million put into uh, two-year treasuries in 2007 at 5%, uh, and that came to half a million dollars. And fast forward to 2012, I think it was, or maybe 13, that same $10 million didn't earn you half a million dollars of interest anymore. It earned you about $13,000. Wow. That's financial repression. That's that's yeah. rich people feeling that they can retire and suddenly not having enough to live on because, and, and that's, you know, you can take this or not. This doesn't apply to rich people. This applies to everybody. You know, you, if that was $1 million or $10, you can scale it all down. But essentially, your ability to earn income on your savings is gone, completely gone. And so you have to then go out and do something with that money to generate the return to live on. And if you ally that with increasing inflation, it's a toxic mix. And there's an aspect of forcing people in yeah. a certain direction. If I can kind of paraphrase Mrs. Beaton, you can't, you know, you can't shoot fish in a barrel unless you put them in a barrel. Right. And the right. first main tool of financial repression has to be capital controls. But it's dividend controls. It's higher corporate profits. It's all the things that have to make other investments look less attractive relative to government debt. And so in this analogy, the fish represent your cash deposits and the barrel represents the banking system. Yeah. No, we, 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 there was a moment in time last year um, when we were living in a world of negative interest rates. And, and just try and think about that for a second. You, know, you, you, you go to work, you earn your money, you take home your pay packet. Let's say you take home $500 for your week. You put it in the bank and then you have to write them a check to hold it for you. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. No, it's exactly right. It is ridiculous. And yet, it happened. We had a period in time where 23% of global GDP was 
happening in countries that had negative interest rates. And so if you ban cash, I mean, you don't allow people an exit from this furnace of NERP. And that's the key here. That's what financial repression is all about. It's about blocking the exit. That's what Modi's move is about. That's what banning the $100 bill, the 500 euro note, the $100 Aussie. You know, there's a $1,000 note in Singapore. I don't know how long that's going to be around for. There used to be a $10,000 note. Um, That's what this is about. It's about isolating the money and having the means to take it where you feel it's appropriate. And and people need to understand this. It's an important concept. And we probably shouldn't we shouldn't forget to talk about the central banks because they play a massively important role here by uh, lowering interest rates and, and doing quantitative easing to lower the bond yields and to try and stoke inflation. Uh, to explain to people what quantitative easing is, if you don't know what it is, it's when the central bank essentially buys government debt with printed money. And global central banks are, have been buying assets at a $200 billion per month clip and balance sheets have ballooned. But there's, there's going to be an end to it. There, there is a catch. I mean, although people think central bankers will keep going forever, if we ever got inflation, they clearly have to stop expanding their balance sheet, Mm -hmm. but somebody has to buy the government debt. So let's say the fiscal policy comes, it succeeds, we get growth, we get inflation. Central bank balance sheets cannot expand in the growth and inflation. So who's going to buy the government debt? And the answer is you are. Yeah, we are. (laughs) It's a great point that Russell makes. Uh, You know, at some point, government's going to run out the ability to buy this money not because they can't continue to print money out of thin air but because belief in what they're doing and confidence in what they're doing um, is going to fray and the numbers are going to look so bad that uh, that people are going to refuse to do it and, and at that point they will be mandating i'm sure pension funds to to hold a certain percentage in sovereign bonds and 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 the trouble is once you go in to these things you, you, you can't get out of them. There's no, there's no way out. These are all roach motels. Yeah, and I think one of the most pernicious things about this is that it is essentially a stealth tax on savers and a transfer to debtors. But you know, the thinking is even, I think, more scary or scarier. More scary is not a word. So the thinking is expropriatory and confiscatory. That's Simon Mikhailovich again. The idea that uh, governments are struggling uh, under the uh, heavy burdens of debt, uh, slow global economy, and the answer, one of the answers to that is not to figure out how to uh, make structural changes, but the, one of the answers to that is how to confiscate money yeah. uh, from where it is. So you remember uh, Willie Sutton, who was a bank robber in the United States yeah. in the 1930s, and when he was famously asked, why did he rob banks? His answer was because that's where that's the money, where the money is. is. Yeah. Right. And so they're going to the people where the money is um, and, and, and trying to confiscate it. Well, Willie, can't, Willie Sutton can't find you if you're in cash, though. Well, that's true. Look, you, look you, you, when you say it's more scary, I think it's worse than that. It's more scarier. You know, I think, uh, I think when you look at this stuff, what Simon says, and Simon is, is so right about this. And, you know, Simon grew up in the Soviet Union and came to, to the United States in 19, uh, the age of 19 without a penny to his name. He's been through this. He understands what confiscation is. He understands what expropriatory and confiscatory uh, actions do. And he understands this better than just about anybody I've spoken to. And he's absolutely right. You have to, as Russell said, put the fish in the barrel. I get the cash somewhere where it can't get out. And then you can take, dip your hand in. And, and the beauty of it is you can make it play politically very, very well. If you're confiscating money from all those evil one percenters, those you know, those millionaires, and, and that narrative is in place. Of course it is. Of course it is. There's been a, a consistent theme of demonising the wealthy. 
um, and that is a prelude to taking their money. But but you know, unfortunately, in a world of zero interest rates, the the line between wealthy and just doing okay has fallen precipitously. And so, uh, an amount of money that used to be an awful lot, as, a, as my example, you know, if you if you had your ten million dollars in cash, you're earning half a million dollars a year. You're a rich person. If you have $10 million uh, sitting in the bank now and you're earning $13,000 a year, you're still trying to service a $10 million lifestyle with $13,000. It's just not happening. And, and so that's the problem we have here. That this, this money has to be taken from somewhere, and it can only be taken from the people who've got it. And just because you have a lot of it doesn't set your sight on people that have a little. They're going to have to take it from everybody. I think another aspect here about the ban on cash is, is also the, how cash and privacy are linked. Um, which which might explain why governments are approaching this from the criminality angle. I was speaking to somebody the other day uh, in in this area who was explaining to me that it made made complete sense, and I said, "Well, what about what about my privacy?" That's Marin Somerset Webb again. What about if I'm having an affair with my next door neighbour and we want to nip to the hotel down the road for a couple of Negronis and then book a room for the night? <laughs> and I don't want you to know about that. And he said, "People don't care about privacy anymore." I do. That's terrifying, though, isn't it? But, I mean, it is the way the world is going in almost every aspect. It is terrifying, and the the way or the direction the world is moving towards is greater debt levels. You said, Grant, greater debt levels and to sustain that debt servicing. I mean, this cash ban has implications not only for wealth preservation, but also per, for privacy. Absolutely. Look, if, if, if every financial transaction that you take is subject to government scrutiny... Um, that's a world that not many people are going to want to live in. I mean, and it doesn't mean you're trying to do something, uh, do something nefarious. You know, a, a guy I used to work with um, over in Singapore was trying to transfer some money to his father. And it was a couple of thousand dollars that his dad needed for something. And he had had an account with the bank for, I don't know, a decade maybe. Um, and uh, when he tried to, to transfer this $2,000 to someone in the UK with the same family name, the bank called him and said, okay, look, before we transfer the money, we need to know what the what the use of those funds is going to be. I mean, this is you know, $2,000 to your father. What right does that mean? Who, what right sounds does the like bank China. To, to ask you? What, yeah. what, look, whatever it sounds like, it doesn't sound like the world that we really want to build around ourselves. And this is the way things are going. Yeah. I guess this has been, this is uh, allowed to proceed and, and to move uh, with the pace that it's moved because a large segment of society... I guess, does not feel very strongly about the privacy issue. It's true. And I think Merrin hit the, hit the, hit the nail on the head earlier on in, in, in one of the earlier pieces we played when she said, you know, this is all used for bad things. And that's not you, is it? You know, it, this is guilt by association. Right. If you want to use cash, therefore you are, you know, this is, this is, this is a, a logical fallacy, right? If drug criminals, uh, criminals, money launderers use cash. Therefore, if you use cash, you're a criminal. Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. I mean, it's, this is classic, and it it has to be done that way to make you buy into the fact that well, I don't want to be seen as a criminal or a money launderer, so therefore I'm okay with this not using cash because I'm I'm a good guy. So uh, probably the right time now to bring this back full circle. You know, we started at India, we talked about the West, and now we got a chance to talk to Raul about his own experience in India. Hi, my name's Raul Pal. I write and publish the Global Macro Investor. In addition, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision Television. I basically look through the world in a global macro point of view, looking at business cycles on a very top down, looking at all asset classes and all geopolitical events globally and try and piece the puzzle together. The initial 
an obvious reaction to something like the Indian demonetization announcement is to think, oh my God, this is the world we've been worried about. This is the world that we think is coming to the West where they ban currency. They've been talking about it in Spain. They've been talking about it in many countries across Europe. They've been talking about it in the US. And when I saw the Indian announcement, the first and obvious conclusion to draw is, wow, they've done it in India first. Then I sat down and thought about it. And I know India well. I'm half India myself. I spend a lot of time there. I lived there in the early 80s. And there's something that anybody who analyzes India needs to understand. It's a word. It's a word called bakshish. Bakshish is the Indian word for bribery or tip. That runs the Indian economy. Without bakshish, nothing works. So that's so bakshish. Have you ever heard of this term, bakshish? I have, yeah. It, it's funny. Living in Asia, as I've done for many, many years, uh, we would often have American businessmen or UK businessmen coming over to Asia. And, and they'd go to places like Malaysia and Indonesia and try and do business. And they'd be just appalled at the, the guy that was trying to arrange something for them would then come to them and say, okay, look, I need, you know, I need 5% or I need a few hundred bucks or whatever it may be. And, and, and what is in the West seen as bribery and corruption in Asia and in India, this is, you can think of it as a tax, whatever. It's the oil that makes these things work. And, and it's, not, it's not seen as illegitimate in these places. This is just how the system works. This is, you know, you, someone does something for you, you pay them for it. And, and I, I totally understand where we're going with this. I mean, we've, we see it in Asia everywhere we go, but it is a foreign concept to people in the West. Well, it gets better. So let me tell you a story a bit about how corrupt India is. Back about, I guess, about 12 years ago, I was looking to buy a house in Goa on the beach. And it was a rundown shack, but it had a 200-square-meter footprint, and there was nothing left of the building, but it was on the beach. Now, that's extraordinary because in Goa, you can't actually build on the beach. It's illegal. They have draconian planning laws now, which is great. So if I could buy this piece, this, this property, I could then build a house using the footprint, and I would legally have something that was actually physically on the beach in Goa, which is incredibly rare. And it cost nothing. So I put in an offer to this local family uh, at the full asking price. They accepted, shook hands. I gave it to the lawyer, never heard from him again. He stopped responding to my emails. So I went back to India again, back to see the lawyer and said, well, what's going on here? He said, well, you probably have to offer them some more money. Now, this is where the bribes come in because the lawyer is actually trying to take extra money here and somebody else is being palmed off there. So I said, OK, fine. I understood the system. Bakshish. But then I came back again and nothing had happened. I'm like, really? I've offered over the asking price. I've got the lawyer. I just want to get the transaction done. And I went back and Lo and behold, I went to that beach and somebody was building a house on that house. But not only was it not the 200 square meter house, it was a 800 square meter house, which was completely illegal. And it's some guy from Delhi had come down with a suitcase full of cash and had gone to the local town hall and bribed all the panchayats, the uh, kind of local officials, and then bribed the planning permission people and they'd allowed the whole thing to happen. So me trying to buy a house, this is the friction of Indian society, of the financial system and the uh, commercial system. It was impossible to me to buy that house because I could not bribe in the right way that the other guy did. This whole thing has a potential to change that sort of stuff. I mean, that, that just sounds like a nightmare. Like there's a troll under every bridge that you're crossing. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's true. And, it, and it's funny, you know, the, the, this is the way it works. And, and Raoul obviously appreciated that when he went in there. Uh, and in this case, it didn't work for him because a guy had a bigger suitcase, right? That, right. That, that's, um, that's the unfortunate part of this. Um, uh, and yes, look, this does have 
the ability to change this. But look, people people get very creative with stuff like this. And you know, you're you're, you're banning notes, you're banning gold. The the gold black market is going to increase. Um, people will find creative ways around this. It's just the way it's human nature. And so, you know, while the, the, the effort to cut out bribery and corruption is, is a noble one, um, I, you know, I don't think it's possible to do unless you can ban all forms of cash and, you know, ban gold, which is not going to happen in India. No. Um, you know, it, it, it's, you're fighting and losing battle. It's like the war on drugs. You, you can't stop humans wanting to take drugs. It's... You're going to spend a lot of money trying to do it, and now we're seeing in, in Colorado and Washington, the Western states, the United States, marijuana being made legal because they can tax it. And this is another sign that you know, we need to get some revenue from somewhere. So this idea of being able to stamp out bribery and corruption, um, I think, is a fallacy. I don't think you can stop human beings doing what they do, but, but they're going to try that in India. That friction creates enormous problems within India, but it's accepted and people have had enough of it because it gets in the way of everyday life. You just can't do regular transactions like you would do normally. People aren't incentivized by it because they've created this old system of bakshish. But getting rid of a lot of these notes, getting rid of the cash-based society in India, which is kind of 90% of their entire society, is a really big step to something in the future. A country like India can now leapfrog ahead of other countries that suffer this problem. Africa suffers this terribly. You know, so much money gets taken away by the middleman. And that's not right. Now, what's great is about a billion people have bank accounts in India. But they're not using them properly. They use bank accounts because you get certain subsidies and certain allowances for the government by having them. But really, if you can get people to use their bank accounts and start paying each other electronically, you're going to change the frictions within the Indian system. You'll allow for a much newer commercial system, it goes into the 21st century and leaps, leaps ahead of so many other countries. I think that's a really good thing. So if we follow that, that train of thought, I mean, banking inclusion could mean opportunities for consumer and business credit creation. Uh, if governments can collect more taxes and they could potentially in, uh, invest in infrastructure in the country. I mean, India, India's debt to GDP is around 67%. So there's still, relatively speaking, room to lever up. So I don't know, I just thought it was interesting to hear from Raul the nuance between yes like this is banning cash is is um is an authoritarian move you know, it limits civil liberties it's an infringement of civil liberties and we understand sort of the broader context of this uh, at least in the west this move towards financial repression but I don't know, I just thought it was interesting that Raul kind of addresses the nuance between um the the opportunity and also the the negativity that and 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 impacts that came out of the demonetization. Yeah, and, and he, look, he's absolutely right. He and I go backwards and forwards about this. He's right. If they can pull this off, it's an undoubted positive in the ways that he describes. Um, and look, let's face it, none of this would be possible without the mobile phone revolution. You know, all this banking is going to be done on phones. People don't have computers, internet out in the out in the in the, in the rural parts of India. This is a mobile phone-led revolution. And you know, if they can do it in the way they want to do it. Despite all the, let's take the, the drawbacks of, of what we've spoken about in terms of the ability to confiscate cash, banning it, et cetera, et cetera. If they can smooth transaction frictional costs, if they can uh, subjugate human nature and get people to buy into this, unequivocally it will be a good thing in many, many ways. My concern uh, has been from the day that, that it was announced that 
uh, it's going to be incredibly difficult to pull off for the reasons we've discussed. I think the line between an economy that desperately needs people into the financial system and an economy that needs to allow people to keep out of the financial system is a complex one. But basically, when you've got wildly indebted economies that are very mature, with a banking system that is opaque, with far too much debt to handle, and governments have far too much debt to handle to even bail out a banking system, should that ever be required, you need to have a place to keep out of it. And gold is one, and Bitcoin is another, and property is one. You know, there's various other ways. But you need to allow some cash to allow things to work. You know, if there was no cash and something happened like the Argentinian collapse in 2001, then there is no way of paying for anything, even though there wasn't enough cash. So I think it's important to have some cash available in developed economies with high debts so people can avoid the worst case outcome. In India, it's the opposite. You need money in the banking system for the system to function and for government to function. And without it, you can't build a modern, powerful economy. And so this is what I find fascinating about this topic uh, is that at once you can have financial oppression and so the forces of financial oppression and the forces of financial inclusion uh, inclusion happening all at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting. Right after the, um, the demonetization announcement, within a few days, uh, we had a cyclone go through India. And I think it was Delhi. I think one of the major cities basically lost power, lost electricity, lost everything. And the whole place shut down because there was no way to get to ATMs. People couldn't get cash out. There was no way. If you have electronic money and the power grid goes down, you have no functioning society. I mean, this is, this is, this is such a great argument to go back and forth and you could do it all day. You know, there's, a, there's a famous uh, photograph taken by um, a great French photographer called uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, which was taken in Shanghai in the 1920s of a bank run. This is 1920s, and it's a whole bunch of Chinese people standing outside a bank trying to get their money out when there's a panic and people should look the photo up it's it's an incredibly powerful image of panic in a banking system and if you don't give people the means to at least try and get their money out if there's the wall just comes down and there's there's no need to even queue your money's in there you can't get at it we're going to see all kinds of extreme outcomes in moments of panic because as, as, as I think Gerald Salenti says, when people have nothing to lose, they lose it. And he's absolutely right. If you can't get to your money and you have no possibility of getting to it, what do you do? You, you, you get very extreme very quickly. Which is the reactions we've seen. Grant, one idea or thought that I want to flow past you is that could it be that India is implementing this ban on cash or trying to uh, modernize their banking system in preparation f- to sort of pick up the bucket when the next crisis comes, they're the next country to lever up. You know, China is not going to be there to pick up the, the baton the next time we have a, a global crisis to reinflate. So could it be that trying to prime India to, to, to get ready, essentially, for that uh, outcome? Look, it's possible. Uh, it's possible. I, I don't know that they will be ready in time uh, to pick that baton up smoothly. Um, they, would, they would need to you know, be a lot further down the path I think than they are now, um, but who knows how quickly they can change that? If, if you if you spent your time in India, you know as Rail has, as I have over the years, you know how inefficient a country it is. That that's been the big problem. It's the bureaucracy. And it's not just corruption; it's bureaucracy. The layers of red tape you have to go through. 
So look, I, I am skeptical that they will get this through in as fast and as seamless a way as they need to. These changes are, are seismic um, and they don't happen easily in a normally functioning country. But one that has the problems and the challenges that India has, um, I, I just I, I think the degree of difficulty is of a magnitude far, far higher. And, and we all know the story. I mean, the story in India is, is a great story for the future and it has been a great story for a couple of decades now. And they have made advances but they haven't made the kind of advances in the last couple of decades that they would need to make in the next five to ten years. The pace would have to pick up to an extraordinary degree for this to, to work as seamlessly as people hope it might. You see, Grant, this is one of the uh, the things that I love most about what we do and, and sort of the conversations we're involved with is is the back and forth. It's looking at things from multiple angles and points of view. I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Yes, yeah, I, I much prefer Billy Connolly's definition of first-rate intelligence, which is being able to listen to the William Tell Overture and not think of the Lone Ranger. <laughs> is that... Oh, that's, I feel like that's just, just kind of went over my head. I don't yeah. even know any of those references. <laughs> The beauty of this is that look, there's no right and wrong. Um, you know, we're all we're all trying to figure out the future here. That's essentially what we, we talk about. When we talk about financial markets. We have a set of events, and we're trying we're trying to figure out what's going to happen. So, the idea of Real Vision, one of the big things we try and do, is just just to air the debate, get both sides talking, um, understand that if someone doesn't agree with you, it's actually far more useful to you than finding someone who does uh, a lot of the time, uh, and give people a platform where they can air their views in a, in, a, in a respectful environment. And I think that's to everybody's benefit. Absolutely. And to sort of follow on with that, you know, we don't want to just leave, uh, do a story and then just leave it. I mean, this is something that we should definitely, we'll definitely keep on tracking because it's a major development in global markets. All right, moving right along. Coming up next is our segment we call What I Got Wrong. So the premise of this is that you never really hear about mistakes or failures when you tune into the mainstream financial you know, media. Um, but learning and growth really come from mistakes, these lessons. So we're trying to flip that narrative on, on its head. You know, so some of the most successful investors in history got about 58% of their trades right. You know, you, you get a little bit over half. 58? Wow. Yeah, and you, and you manage the risk effectively. You can become very, very wealthy. Um, but, that, you know, that other 42%, um, nobody likes to talk about it. And, and and what we want to try and do here is is help people understand that, you know, oftentimes you learn more from mistakes you made and, and how you should handle it next time than you do when you get something right. So we try and talk to people ask them about things they got wrong, how did they deal with it, how did it affect their thinking, uh, in the hope that we can pass those lessons on to people um, making mistakes of their own and hopefully trying to minimize them uh, and not make them again. And so, you know, who better to go to when we're talking about mistakes uh, than my dear friend and co-founder at Real Vision, Raoul Powell. So let's hear, let's hear about what Raoul got wrong. So Raoul, I, I think James may have already briefed you a little bit, but essentially what we're trying to get at is you know, when we talk about truth in finance, right? How do you arrive at the truth? You arrive at the truth, one of the ways is through introspection and being honest and, you know, humble. So how, you know, can you, can you describe a time that you, you maybe had a failure or a challenge, an investing failure or challenge, and any significant lesson, you know, a significant lesson you learned? From yeah, that? I think the humility point is incredibly important because financial markets teach you humility. Because whenever you think your shit smells of roses, you suddenly get your face rubbed in it. And I think that's a key, key lesson that people have to learn is you will get it wrong. However, there are certain things, there's certain times you've got it wrong because 
probability didn't fall the way you expected. So even if there's an 80% chance of something working, the 20% outcome happened. Okay, that's normal. And that's fine. We live for those kind of opportunities. You keep doing, getting the odds in your favor repeatedly, you will win over time. But mistakes that you truly make are the ones that you have to learn from. And they're the ones where you've really kind of screwed something up because you ignored the kind of rule set that you use. Now, some people are very rule-based. You know, Peter Brandt, for example, or, or some of the technical analysts are really, really rule-based. I'm not very rule-based. But what I do have is a framework. And I have a framework that I try and use as religiously as possible. And when I start to ignore it because I think I know better, or I can forecast better than what I'm actually seeing in the data, is when I get it wrong. And my classic example was back in 2009. This was my horrible year, the worst year that I ever had. And basically it's because I saw the outcome of the potential outcome of something truly awful happening, of the financial system actually falling apart. And that probably had a 10 or, to call it 10% chance. So I tried to bet on that 10% chance, as opposed to on the 90% chance that the business cycle had bottomed. The ISM, which I use as my framework for the business cycle, had started turning up. And I said, well, you know what, it could be the 1980s, again, the early 80s, where we had a double-dip recession. And I hung my hat on that and didn't close out the positions that I should have closed out. And so I ignored my framework, bet on the small odds as opposed to the big odds. You can bet on those small odds, but then you need to structure your trade right by having those tail-risk trades where you'd only lose 1% or whatever the small, the small number is to make the big gains if you're right. And you understand that the chances are you're not going to be right. But if you do, you make huge returns. But I didn't do that. And that's how I screwed it up, is I continued to bet that the markets would roll over again, that the global economy would roll over again, even though the data was wildly skewed in favor of me being wrong. So kind of to follow up on that, you know, when you do encounter some kind of failure or challenge, how do you differentiate between a failure of your system versus a failure of not following your system? Yes, it depends on what your system is. I find that most people don't have a framework. So therefore, it becomes a kind of whole lot of noise. And that means they get many, some things right, some things not right. And they can never attribute it to a certain reason. What you should have is a reason, a thesis, a framework. And then you know, if it's not following your framework, you're wrong because your framework was wrong or you assess the odds wrong. And that's that's a much easier thing. But most people just put on trades. Well, most novices just put on trades. And they just hope they're all going to work. And there's no thought into trade construction, probabilities, and the framework that they've got around that idea that they're, they're investing. So often you'll find people have a random portfolio of random trade ideas with no particular idea of stop losses, no particular idea of why they've got the trade on any longer. And many of us still make that mistake. I think all the best fund managers in the world still make the mistake of, shit, I've got this trade on. I don't really know why I've got it on anymore. You know, the thesis didn't really play out. It didn't really lose money for me. And I've got this trade on. Suddenly it starts losing money. You're like, why didn't I take it off? That's actually, that's a much harder thing to do is when something, a position doesn't start working out like you imagined, but it's not losing you money. 
you tend to just keep it on and kind of hope it's going to work or it loses you a small amount. And then before you know it, you're looking elsewhere in your portfolio, watching other price action, and then you suddenly realize that position that you should have taken off because your thesis wasn't working is now losing you shitloads of money and you're starting to feel sick because of it. And that's a very typical thing that people do. So that's not like making the wrong bet. That's just almost forgetting about the position and just changing in your mind the reason you got it in your portfolio. You mentioned changing your mind. Where do you see your gut in terms of this process and your framework? I mean, where is the balance between listening to your gut and because you're thinking this time might be different versus your framework? Like, how, how has it changed? Where's that balance? Generally, I find that when you think with your gut, you screw it up. So the other recent example where I screwed up on the gut feel was really after Brexit. You know, my gut feel is, okay, within my framework, the business cycles were all falling. So it was close to having, generating a signal that would offer the big sell signal within the equity markets. But I anticipated it in advance by saying Brexit, that's the thing that's going to make it happen, as opposed to allowing it to happen. So then I end up with a whole lot of short positions in equity markets, and equities basically don't go down until the ISM starts breaking 50 and falling. So they didn't go down. And then you kind of, again, same kind of position where I wasn't really losing money, so it's fine. And I was making a ton of money in other positions. And then before you know it, equities start rallying after the election. You're like, oh, shit. Why didn't I just, after my thesis, why don't I just close it out, take a few small losses, would have been fine, but I lost more money in that position than I should have done. I think it's so fascinating you bring up Brexit because just like there are a lot of lessons to, to be learned from Brexit um, that, that went over into uh, the U.S. election. I mean, I think a lot of people made the same mistake as well for the U.S. election. So did what happened to you during the U.S. election? Did you have short positions? And if, if I can ask you, like... Well, I just had some of the remnants of the short positions left in the Brexit thing because they were, you know, everything had traded sideways for a while. So I thought, yeah, it's going to be fine. So then after that became a bit complicated. Luckily, I closed out a lot of the other trades that I'd had on. You know, my uh, long bond trades I closed into the summer. Um, I still had the long dollar trade, which exploded and worked really well. Um, So some of that offset it. But yeah, again, I kept my eye off the ball because these positions weren't really that painful until they suddenly become painful. And you're like, okay, I need to do something about it because that's when you start losing sleep. And it's usually because you've really not done your job which is follow your framework, you know, the Brexit thing didn't work, okay, fine, take that off, take the pain, move on. If you don't do it, that's when you get into trouble. Yeah. Well, I, I would love to ask you like a million other questions about your framework, but there is actually a, a, a great video on that uh, on Real Vision. So, um. Yeah, there is. And, and I think people should watch that video because it, it's very, really important to see how I use a framework. Different people have different frameworks. But you'll see from that video of how that business cycle, how important it is to me, how it does work and drive asset prices, and how I'm an idiot when I start to try and preempt what it's doing, and it, ha- it doesn't do it. It's like, come on, Raoul, you know better than this. So Grant, you've known Raoul for a long time, and after listening to that, is there is there anything he left out? He, uh, well, look, he, oh, hang on. Uh, uh, no, he hasn't made any other mistakes uh, at all in his entire career except those two. <laughs> none whatsoever. Uh, none, right? Yeah. None. No, none. None at all. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, I've been looking forward to this part of the show. Uh, this is where our producer, James, has promised to line us up with a top-notch guest who's going to explain what the carry trade is to you. James, uh, who have you got for us? Yeah, well, um, about that. Oh, here we go. All right. Come on. Who have you got? Uh, 
Well, my seven-year-old son was available. Oh, God, roll the tape. Preston, what is the carry trade? It's where someone sells a currency and uses the funds to purchase something in another currency. Pretend you are the owner of a Mexican milk company and you want to buy 2,000 cows to increase your profit. The cows will cost you 1 million U.S. dollars or 20 million Mexican pesos and you think the new cows will increase your profits by 10%. You can borrow money at 7% at a Mexican bank but you heard that you can borrow money at 2% in the U.S. Being the smarty pants that you are you fly to Texas to meet with the bank about borrowing a million dollars, which is your funding currency, and converts it into pesos at 20 pesos into the dollar. Now we can buy some cows. A year of milking cows goes by, and you've decided it's time to repay the money. You owe 2% on the million dollars you borrowed, and you've earned 10% on the 20 million pesos worth of cows. That's $20,000 in interest expense and too many million pesos in return of investment. That's a cool $80,000 you just made or 8% on your million dollar investment. Assuming the exchange rates stay the same when in reality, exchange rates are volatile and are affected by things like interest rate policy, speculation, and other factors, which means that between the time you bought and sold your cows, if the Mexican peso loses value versus the dollar, suddenly you owe more than you did before because your debt is in a stronger currency and your revenue is in a weaker one. And that's the carry trade. Nice. Thank you. You're welcome, Daddy. All right, well, look, your seven-year-old son saved you there. Preston did a great job. Yeah, kids these days, I mean, so entrepreneurial. Mexico and cows, I, I guess it kind of makes sense. He's opportunistic. The Mexican peso has lost 50% of its value yeah. against the US dollar over the past couple of years. But it's probably worth pointing out um, that anything you've heard in this episode should not be construed or considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So guys, be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your own technicals, and remember, trade responsibly. All right, well, that just about wraps things up for this week. Uh, Aaron, what do we got on the slate for next week? Well, Grant, we'll be back with our usual Things I Got Wrong segment. We'll also be introducing a new segment called Long Short, where you and I are going to talk about the good and not-so-good news stories of the week. And finally, for our commentary feature, you and Raul will be annotating over a past RVTV interview. We're going to get a chance to listen to uh, a, a super smart guy, Marco Papich, who's the chief geopolitical strategist at BCA Research. And Marco and I sat down for a conversation in Montreal uh, in the middle of last year, which, you know, when you listen to it back now, uh, I mean, some of the things he says there are, are extraordinary in their prescience, given what followed. So I think everyone's going to really enjoy listening to that. Um, we can't really base our investment decisions on preferences because it's very difficult to get inside a policymaker's head. But also, I would argue that it's not really relevant from an investment perspective because what Putin wants is different from what Putin can do. And so that's why when investors think about Mario Draghi or Janet Yellen or Vladimir Putin or whoever, Donald Trump, I think we need to always think about constraints and preferences. And I think the market is consistently pricing these questions and consistently making mistakes. And if you have a question uh, about this week's show, feel free to send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It keeps my bosses happy. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Real Vision for the latest updates on interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes. You can find me at TTMYGH. And myself at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We'll see you all next week. Thanks very much for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com